passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 2 Hey everybody, JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer here in our Baseball America Playoff Podcast, Season Recap Podcast, really. Like, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> hey everybody, JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer here, Baseball America Podcast. Today we're going to do a 2023 season in review podcast. We'll look ahead to the playoffs, that's coming, but today we want to look back. We just wrapped up pretty exciting a uh uh i would say by mlb standards mlb is crowing a lot about attendance today i think that mlb would definitely call this a successful season so we're gonna look today at a lot of the on the field a little bit of the off the field but mostly on the field as we wrap up the 2023 major league season review kyle glad to have you on the pod here and i don't know about you but i'll kind of start it off by this way like i'm getting old now and when a regular season ends now, I, I do get a little bit of almost like wistfulness, nostalgia. Like I've seen a lot of these and it is kind of, uh, you know, it's amazing every time another season wraps up that we, that was another season is in the books. But what is your feeling when I know we still have playoffs ahead, but when a regular season wraps up? Yeah, I think every year is a little bit different. I'll say this one felt like it happened pretty quickly. I'm looking at the calendar. I'm like, how is it October already? Um, you know, we all talk about 2020 was the longest year in the history of mankind. I'm pretty sure that year was like 730 days. It wasn't 365. And, you know, 2021, you know, things were still kind of just getting back to normal a little bit, but it still felt like just kind of a long year where everything was still out of sorts a little bit. You know, 2022, we had labor strife. It just didn't feel like kind of a, a normal year in a lot of ways. This year felt like the first start to finish normal year. No controversies, no threats of labor shutdowns, no restrictions anywhere. Um, really, in a lot of cases, um, no more kind of fear or concern about the effects of the pandemic. So I think with that, this felt kind of normal again. And in that sense, I have no idea where this year went. I, again, it's kind of amazing to me the year's over. I feel like it wasn't that long ago. We were gearing up for opening day, but here we are. And I have to say, I mean, October for my money is the best month of the sports calendar. You have the MLB postseason. 
we have college football, you know, getting into conference play. We have the NFL really ramping up. Uh, NHL and NBA are around the corner. So it's a good time to be a sports fan. Uh, but I'm very, very excited for this postseason, even though in my head I'm like, wait, no, it's June. We should be like approaching the All-Star break. I, I don't know how October crept up on us this quickly. It, it does fly by. It definitely flies by, it, especially the minor league season also wrapping up pretty much the same time nowadays. Um, a lot of like, wow, where did this all go? I do think that when we look back on 2023, 10, 15, 20 years from now, the story, the thing that will be kind of tied to 2023 forever is there's been a lot of rules changes over the years in Major League Baseball. We've had the the rules changes that that seemed at the time to be so significant, and then they happen, and we go, oh, wait, so four four pitches outside of the zone used to be an intentional walk. Like did we, that was a thing. Is that really a big deal or, Oh, the, the big Buster Posey rule discussion of how bad is it to not have catchers getting trucked at a home plate, things like that, that seem significant at the time. And then you look back on it and go, okay, that was a pretty minor rules change. No one can say that about this year. This year, we obviously had a multitude of rules changes. We had MLB, put the thumb on the scale to try to encourage base stealing, which it clearly did. We had MLB bring in pitch clocks, uh, which sped up the game. And we had Major League Baseball also effectively banning a significant amount of shifting. Um, here we are. The season's over. It, I can't, I don't think anyone can say that it didn't change the game. But but what are your what is your now that we've had 162 games times 30 teams? or 161 in the case of the Marlins and the Mets in the books. What does it mean to you? Like what, as you look at this, like what, it, what stood out from the first year of these rather significant rules changes? Yeah. I mean, look, this is the biggest takeaway from the 2023 season. We had a lot of incredible performances. We talk about Shohei Otani, who we just named our 2023 major league player of the year today, the season he had Ronald Acuna. You have Luis Arias becoming the first player to win uh, back-to-back batting titles in both leagues. I mean, you had just so many incredible performances across the board, but what 2023 is going to be remembered for is this was when Major League Baseball underwent a significant shift. I mean, you talk about going from the dead ball era to the live ball era in the 1920s, changing the baseball instead of using one ball per game and letting it get scuffed up and using an every board pearls every game. I mean, that made a huge difference and ushered in a whole new era of offense. Talk about lowering the mound in 1968 or 1969, I should say, um, how that fundamentally changed the game. This was a batch of rules changes that fundamentally changed the way baseball is played in a lot of ways. And we saw the effects. I mean, the average nine in a game this year was two hours and 39 minutes. That's down 24 minutes from last year and 31 minutes from the all-time high from 310 back in 2021. I mean, 31 minutes shaved off every single game on average. I mean, that's a massive, massive, massive change, both for the fan experience as well as the players. It's a lot less time they're on the field and, you know, potentially something that helps give them a little more rest. Uh, But I think the biggest rules change that we just talk about on the field play, again, that's a big one. The pitch clock absolutely was huge, but, you know, violations weren't that many for game, weren't that many per game, excuse me, especially at the end. Um, players adapted really, really well. To me, the, the biggest change is in the stolen base attempts. Uh, there were 3,503 stolen base attempts this year. That's more than 1,000 more stolen base attempts than last year. We're not talking like an increase of 100 or 200, more than 1,000 more year over year. 
It's the most since 1987. Like just to put this in perspective a little bit, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. Like I remember when games lasted like 250. That is in my conscious memory because it wasn't that long ago. Go back to 2010 and you see that. Mm-hmm. There have not been this many stolen base attempts in Major League Baseball since before I was born. The last time there was this many stolen base attempts was 1987. Again, like I'm in my 30s with a mortgage and a kid. Like I'm not a spring chicken here. Literally in my lifetime, we have never had this many stolen base attempts. So I, I think for me, that's actually the biggest takeaway from this year. Again, the pitch clock is going to get all the attention, and it should. It fundamentally changed the pace of the game. But I think in terms of what happened on the field and what changed the most, it's the reintroduction of the run game to a level, again, not seen in my lifetime. And you know, some people tell me I'm still young, but I don't feel that young anymore. As someone who remembers the 87 season quite well and, uh, you know, like the the, the end of the, uh, the Cardinals, hey, who needs to hit? Jack Clark will hit all our homers and uh, everyone else will just run wild. Um, yeah, that, that seems not, not that long ago to me, sadly to say, but, uh, but no, it is, it is the most dramatic change. It is, I, we can talk about Ronald Acuna creating a category that to say that it never existed, it's never been contemplated before. Like when we talk about, I remember speaking of 87, 88, 89, I remember Jose Canseco and like the quest for 40, 40 and like, wow, a 40, 40 club. Ricky Henderson could give you a, you know, a 2580, you know, in a good year. But the idea of someone getting 40 homers and over 70 steals in the same season just didn't even compute. And so like we have that, we have, but I think the one that that jumps out to me, if even as everyone did pay attention to red shortstop slash third baseman Ellie De La Cruz and his second half, because do remember, like it's a second half of the season. He was not up until pretty much midway through the All Star break, a little before right the before break. the All Star break, right? Yeah, he stole thirty five bases this year. <laughs> that's a that's like a okay. That's what you do in a full season. Ellie De La Cruz did that in ninety eight games this year, like which also makes me wonder next year, assuming that his bat you know continues to improve. How many is he going to steal when he gets a, uh, a full season? It, it, there was, that was, this is the case where we knew that this was going to happen. I, I would say you've written a lot about what happened in the minors. We've, I've written about it as well. We saw these rules changes happen in the minors first, which for all the, all the complaints about things that have happened in the minors. One thing that I think that does stand out about this is, is that, by doing these, by beta testing these in the minors, they often have refined and fixed these things before they come to the major leagues. And I would say in the case of the pitch clock, to some extent, I would say in the case of base stealing, they did tweak these things and they probably will continue to a little bit. But the other part I would say about the rules changes is, is that allowed them to do this in a relatively seamless manner for all the talk about it in spring training. There wasn't these moments during the season where these rules changes look like 
utter disasters that were the talk of of baseball for weeks because it had ruined games. I, I don't really remember an instance of something like that. Well, you remember in spring training when you had a game decided off a pitch clock violation and everyone was freaking out. Oh my gosh, is this going to happen in the regular season? We didn't have that happen in the regular season at all. And, you know, at the all-star break uh, address to the BBWA that Rob Manfred does every year, you know, we talked about they thought the umpires did a fantastic job of reading the situation and knowing when to maybe pull the trigger, maybe when to give that extra second so you don't have those horrible situations. And I think the concern was what happens in a postseason situation where base is loaded, tying run on third, you know, game seven, sold out crowd, and the pitcher wants to take an extra breath just to kind of settle himself. And then all of a sudden the pitch clock runs out and the run is forced home off, you know, if it's ball four. I mean, there are all these nightmare scenarios everyone contemplated and the postseason still has to play out, but it's important that those didn't play out. And I think, again, there are plenty of times Major League Baseball does a lot of things that deserve criticism. They deserve credit here for the way these rules changes were implemented and just how they played out over the course of the season. Violations were not that many. We didn't have games decided by them. And, and they had most of their desired effect. But there is one rules change, JJ, that did not have really much of an effect at all. And it's the same thing we saw happen in the minors need to raise. And that's the shift. By banning the shift we saw in the minors, there was really no meaningful increase on you know bat, overall batting average and batting average on balls in play. And we saw the same thing in the majors this year. So the overall batting average was 248. That's pretty much in line with where it's been recently. It was 243 in 2022, 244 in 2021, 248 in 2018. It was actually higher in 2019 when no shifts were banned than, they, than it was this year. And same thing with the batting average on balls in play. It was 27 this year. It was 290 the year before, 292 before that. It was 298 in 2019, 296 in 2018. So, you know, I think that's one thing to keep in mind here is we really saw everything play out the way it did in the minors. And I think it also speaks to the fact that, you know, these averages didn't go up with, for whatever reason, the most atrocious official scoring in the history of Major League Baseball with routine plays that fielders weren't making being rolled hits. So even with a lot of these statistics yeah, being but boosted, as I wrote about that, like there's so few of those, it still cannot really well, affect it. It just can't. Right. Because I mean, it's still might so not have been significant because, you know, when you talk about all the hits over the course of a year, um, at the same time, I do think it's notable that it didn't really have an effect. And and again, batting averages well, and Babbitt's kind of stayed where they were. Okay. I would actually, I'm going to argue a little bit the other way, which is, is that a five point rise is almost, you could argue a statistical noise, but at the same time, it is still five points where we have been going the other way, right? Like, which is, is that, if it would have been five points the other way without it, and we were talking about a 238 average this year compared to the 243 of 2022, we would be talking about how the never-ending decline of batting average is, is headed towards you know the Mendoza line. So, I mean, I agree. It didn't make a dramatic change, but at the same time, it did start to tick back up the other way, which it's been a while since we've had. Uh, you know, a, a move. Well, I mean, direction. to a degree, it actually ticked up from 2018 to 2019 by four points. So I guess what I'm getting at is the, the variance we saw year over year kind of falls within the standard range. We see four mm -hmm. or five point jumps and drops 
fairly regularly, you go back, you know, through the 2010s, there was a somewhat steady decline, but you still saw one year, hey, here's 251 to 254, and then up to 255 the next year, then back down to 248, then back up to 252. Like, we're still in the range of where it was pre-pitch clock, and the variance is not out of the norm. So I think that for me is where I say, yes, it ticked back up, but it wasn't, it's not like this is the first time it's ticked up in 20 years. It ticked up 2018 to 2019, which I know feels like a lifetime ago pre-pandemic, but in the grand scheme of things, wasn't that long ago. The the one other thing I do think it did also is, is it is changing a little bit, very slightly, but I do believe it's changing what players can play second base more than anything. Yes. Is, is that I think that it, which is also a goal of this, I do believe, is, is they're trying to bring more athleticism back in the game. And I do think the Mike Moustakis's and uh, players like that playing second base, not at this point, Mike Moustakis, but you know, we, the Brewers did that. The Brewers were pretty much rolling out almost like if you were a third baseman and you became a Brewer, you got handed like, hey, you're going to play some second now. I think that's something that we're also seeing altered a little bit by this, which is oh, yeah. kind of the secondary effect. Well, well, the the ultimate barometer of this is Max Muncie. Max Muncie did not play a single game at second base this year. And he was the prototype for this. The guy, the shift-enabled second baseman who doesn't have range. It's not that great. You play him there for six innings, and hopefully you get a defensive sub in to kind of finish it out, or you move him to first. The Dodgers didn't play him at second base a single game this year. They understood that with these new rules changes, you can't have players like that there. And, and you're right. That does fundamentally change the type of players who can play second base. And it fundamentally changes from a player development perspective who you can put there. I mean, the Dodgers' plan was to make Michael Bush a second baseman. And then with these rules changes, he can't play second base anymore. So now he has to bounce to third. So that will have an effect on player development moving forward. And we're already seeing it have an effect in the majors um, JJ, what for you was the, your biggest takeaway from the 2023 season? I, I think we can agree the rules changes were huge and probably oh, yeah. number one, but is there anything else here that jumped out to you aside from that? The big thing to me is the other thing that stands out is, is, is that, um, and I, we can debate whether this is good or bad, but we are still absolutely in a world where teams tear it down, can bring it back up. You know, at, for the good, I would say that if you're a fan in Baltimore, winning 100 games is a lot more fun than losing 100-plus games. If you're a fan in Texas, you know, if you're a fan in Arizona, if you're a fan in Phoenix, all of those teams went from losing 100-plus games in 2021, post-pandemic, to being playoff teams this year. And in the case of the Rangers, I know that they ended up not winning the video, but in the case of the Rangers, and the Orioles, especially the Orioles finished with, you know, the best record in the American league. You are talking about teams that they didn't, this is not, Oh, they won 84 and they backed in here because there's now three wildcard teams. These are teams who really did go out and succeed. If you win, if you win, you know, if you are that team, 162 game season, doesn't really give a whole lot of uh, room for flukishness. There is still some variation, but teams don't go from 70 wins to 90 and back and forth because 162 games filters a lot of that out. Well, this is a legitimately good Baltimore team. This is a legitimately good Texas team. And again, I think Arizona is the team that's a wild card team, I'd say, but I think they had, could make some noise here. And I feel like their best years are still ahead of them. But I look at this and 
I don't know, even with the lottery, I don't know if all that, I don't know if enough things, if you think of the losing a hundred is really bad from a fan perspective when teams lose a hundred plus, I feel like if I'm an owner, if I'm a GM, I can't yet say that it's not a good approach from a business slash baseball perspective, especially as much as I hate kind of this to admit this as a fan in football of the Steelers, we're having a rough year some way so far, but I got really excited about this young team coming into the season because there is something as a fan, very enjoyable about watching a young team, put it all together. This, it doesn't erase non-competitive teams that took the field in Baltimore in 2018 or 2019, but this is probably the most enjoyable Baltimore Orioles team to watch in a generation. And it's probably got more better years to come. We're still, again, where do you fall on this? Like, Hey, teams could go from, in the case of the Orioles, from losing a hundred games to to basically winning, you know, flipping the uh, the entire script in the span of just a couple of years. Yeah, it's fun. And, and that's the natural cycle of sports. You're going to have down years. You're going to have years where for whatever reason, whether it's injuries or age or bad contracts, you know, you realize, hey, this isn't working. We need to tear it down and start it all over. And, you know, there's discussions to be had about the level of tanking and, you know, the overall effect on the game. But I think there's certainly times you have to look at your team and be honest with yourself about where you are and what it's going to take to get back to competitiveness and whether you really are one or two free agent signings away or if you really do need a wholesale foundation change. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's always a risk. Anytime you tear it down, you don't bounce back up. And and we've seen this. I've written about it. I've talked about it. For every rebuild that succeeds, there's one that doesn't succeed. It's not as simple as, oh, the Astros and Cubs did it, so now we're going to do it and we're going to be successful. That, not how it works at best it's a 50 50 proposition if it works if you look at the whole sample but when it works yeah it's exciting i mean again this orioles team you go back to that 2018 season that was horrendous they went 47 and 114 um they didn't go into that year like trying to tank it just everything fell apart and they decided they needed to make some changes they traded manny machado at the deadline and zach Britton and kevin gosman and they just had to start over. That's kind of where they were. Um, you know, the intentional losing that, that was certainly sketchy 47 and one fifteen. by the way, I apologize. My math was off there. Um, but look, we've talked about it at nauseam here. They put together a great position player core. Uh, they did a good job incorporating guys who were there from the last regime. And this was a really, really fun year. I mean, seeing the energy in Camden yards was, was pretty spectacular. So no, I'm all for. I mean, I think it would be awful if, you know, teams who are good were always good and teams who are bad who are always bad. And we're back in, you know, the 1950s, 60s where, you know, you knew the Kansas City A's had no chance to compete and they weren't going to compete for a very long time. They're essentially the Yankees farm team. Like, I don't think that would be better for the game. Um, you know, I think it's fun when this happens and worst to first and surprises and and kind of the rebuild come to fruition. In terms of this, you know, the lottery not really changing behavior i mean that's not a surprise i talked about this the nba's had a draft lottery for 30 40 almost years mm-hmm. now and lord knows that has not stopped taking in the nba like you know there are plenty of times you go because you just look at it as okay we're going to maximize our odds of getting number one overall pick we can't guarantee it but we still want to maximize it so 
again, tanking is always going to be a thing in all professional sports to some degree, lottery or not. And I think it's just about appreciating the teams who hit on a rebuild and enjoying it while it lasts. Cause you know, all good things come to an end, but I don't inherently have a problem with it. It's just, you have to understand that if you do this, if you do tank, there's no guarantee it's going to work. You just kind of have to appreciate when it does. That, that kind of leads into my biggest surprise of this year, um, which is that speaking of these teams, this is I look at the Orioles and I say, not that I did not expect. I think we are, you know, we've had them as our number one farm system and org talent rankings. They've had, they just keep producing number one prospects in, in baseball. It's not in any way. It's like, oh, we didn't think that this Orioles rebuild was taking traction and was going to work. I, I just did not expect that it would take effect so quickly. Fighting for a playoff spot this year? Okay, sure. I, that seemed absolutely plausible. Wild card team? Yeah. But in a very, very difficult division, a division that has three teams playing in the playoffs, to go out there and win, to basically be the best team in the American League in a year where if you said, what were the big external moves they made? you kind of struggle to come up with a whole lot of them because it was really much more of, no, we like what we have here. We're going to develop what we have here. Gunnar Henderson gives them another franchise player to plug in right with Adley Rushman and the roster that they already had. Kyle Bradish turns into a legitimate front of the rotation starter. After a slow start, Grayson Rodriguez turns into a legitimate front of the rotation starter maybe a little bit more expected in that case he was considered the top pitching prospect at, at times in the last couple of years but they had you know I, I know that felix batista went down but they had for a lot of the year the best bullpen in baseball with batista and cano especially in the first half of the season you look at this team now and what's amazing about this is they are legitimately here again you do not win no one flukes their way to triple digits and wins but the other part of it is, is I don't feel like that this is this team at its best, though. I feel like that I look at this team and say, should they be better in 24 and 25? Yeah, they should be. And now there's no guarantees. You can always have things, unexpected things happen. But to see this team be this good this quickly has really blown me away. Yeah, you know, we saw them turn upward last year, winning 83 games, and you started to see the position player core really taking shape with Adley Rutschman's call-up. You know, we saw against, you know, Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, those guys were there, Ryan Mountcastle. But, you know, Rutschman's the guy that tied it all together. And I talked about this with uh, Jeff Ponce on our podcast we did uh, weeks ago. Look, I was an Orioles skeptic. Um, I, I didn't think they were building the pitching infrastructure to be successful, particularly in the AL East. And give them credit, they they – they did it. They were right. I was wrong. I can own it. Um, it's really, really impressive. Again, I've talked about this at nauseum. Seeing the steps Kyle Bradish took has been remarkable to me. Um, you know, Grayson Rodriguez coming back up, making the adjustments he did. We knew he was talented, but he had some pretty significant adjustments to make, and he made them very, very quickly, which is a testament. Yeah, I mean, the Orioles winning 101 games this year and, and cruising to the best record in the American League, I think that certainly would have been a stretch if you had told me that beginning of the year. If you told me they won 87, 88 games and were contending yeah. for a wild card spot, I'd buy it. Um, but yeah, 101 wins is a huge surprise. 
you know, kind of non-Orioles division. For me, the biggest surprise, and, and it's kind of a off-kilter pick a little bit because they're not a playoff team, but nonetheless, the, the team that surprised me the most is actually the Cubs. You know, I, I've talked about this and written about this. When you do a full-on tear-it-all-down rebuild, we talk about when it works, it takes four years, like kind of minimum. And we even saw with the Orioles, this started mid-2018, it really blossomed. They were back in the postseason in 2023, so five years. The Cubs tore it all down only two years ago in 2021, trading you Darvish before the season and then at the deadline, trading Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant, Javier Baez and, and Craig Kimbrell and everyone they traded. And you say, okay, you know, it'll be 2025. Maybe if we get, you know, to the extra wild card spot, which eventually happened, maybe that could shave a year off, but it's going to be a lean few years. And this year, the Cubs were in it until the very end. And again, they did not finish strong. Um, it was definitely not a great way to finish the season. And I know everyone involved in that front office is, is certainly disappointed. But, and of course, the clubhouse, but just the fact they were even in it, that they bounced back up from a full on tear it down to the studs rebuild this quickly was kind of amazing. And, and some of it was really good free agent signings. Dansby Swanson, Cody Bellinger, who looked so lost with the Dodgers for years, you know, him coming back up. But we also saw some big internal improvements. Christopher Morrell, you know, had a really good season. We saw Seiya Suzuki take a big step forward, you know, year one to year two in the big leagues. I mean, Justin Steele blossoming into a Cy Young contender. I mean, I don't think anyone saw that coming. Albert Alzale becoming a dominant closer. Mm. You know, I, I think for me, the Cubs had so many guys take jumps and not every free agent signing worked, you know, Eric Hosmer, Trey Mancini, and then they brought up Matt Mervis. He wasn't ready, um, I think. But you look on balance. I mean, this was a, a talented, competitive team that had a real chance at making the postseason to the very end. Just kind of how rapidly that happened coming off of that tear it down rebuild. That, to me, is the biggest surprise of anything in Major League Baseball, even in a weak division, even with the extra wild card spot. I thought they were a year away from having this kind of season, and then maybe 2025 would be when it actually all clicked. Okay, I'm going to ask you with that. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, which is speaking of that division, yeah. which future do you like better now, the Cubs' future or the Reds' future? Because that's the other team in that same division that stayed in it till. I think they had 161 games that mattered, which is about 160 more than they've had in any recent year. Um, yeah. So, yeah, which team of those do you like kind of their their future when you look at 24, 25, 26? Yeah, you know, it's it's a tough call. Um, I, I'm going to give the edge to the Cubs simply because they have more payroll resources to utilize. And I can see uh, that. While I know Cubs ownership has not always ingratiated itself the best of the fan base, they also haven't actively alienated themselves the way Red's ownership was and haven't said things essentially like challenging them to go watch someone else. So uh, I think it's probably just a healthier ownership situation with more payroll resources, which is why I would pick the Cubs. Um, but there's no question the Reds have a tremendous homegrown core coming up with position players. Um, but again, it's about, okay, keeping them. It's about making sure you have the payroll resource to uh, appropriately supplement them. And I just, at the end of the day, trust the Cubs to be able to do that a little bit better. What about you? Um, I agree with you on the fact that I, I think that when it comes to the time, we both agree 
The Orioles have skipped this step. The Rays have managed to generally avoid this step. But the best way to speed up a rebuild at some point is to go out in the free agent market to add talent to a core that you already have. And I feel a lot more confident that the Cubs will go out and add to the core than I do the Reds. That said, I so I think what it means is, is that the Cubs have a little bit more re- resiliency, redundancy that allows them, if, you know, next couple of years. If everything breaks right for the Reds, I think the Reds are incredibly well positioned. But we saw this year when Hunter Green and Nicoladolo and Graham Ashcraft, and we could just keep going down the list, went down at different times. And it was like, well, today we're sending out Michael Marriott. Nothing against love the Michael Marriott story, but it's like, wow, Michael Marriott's still an affiliate ball. It's like, no, no, no. He hasn't been an affiliate ball for a very long time. Yes, he's been in partner league slash indie ball. They just need, you know, but he's back now. That's where I think that the Cubs are better positioned. This is that I think the Cubs will be way more willing to bump that payroll back up to the 150 million range when it's time to. Not so confident that the Reds will, but yeah. But that's a perfect segue now. We talked about the teams that their fan bases, even if, even if in the you know the case we're talking about, I don't think Reds fans are all that disappointed about not making the playoffs. I feel like they feel pretty good about this year. Kyle, I want to dive deeper into this, but right after this quick message. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't a search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. That's why I use Indeed for our hiring at Baseball America. It allows me to do everything on one website. I get quality candidates. I can schedule them. I can interview them. I can screen them. I can send messages to them all within Indeed. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Kyle, what's a fan base that's that's really more um, banging their head against the wall than, uh, than going to, you know, than kind of have walking around with a smile of, oh, that was a, a valiant try? Yeah, well, there's a lot of them. Um, Padres, Mets, and Yankees, obviously, with uh, three of the highest, pay- the three highest payrolls in Major League Baseball, all missing out in the postseason. Um, I-, I think you know the Padres are going to be a popular answer here, but I- I've talked about this um, on podcast, and and you can verify this. We did it before the season. Internal staff meetings we were talking about picking the NL West. When I was like, guys, it's going to be the Dodgers. You know, the Padres had real holes in terms of the bottom of their lineup, uh, the middle of the bullpen. There's way too much Drew Carlton and Domingo Tapia early in the year. And, you know, the pieces just didn't fit. So I'm not surprised they underwhelmed. I'm surprised they were this bad. I I thought they'd still, you know, contend for a wild card instead of being out of it for pretty much the whole year. But um, the fact that they were never really in the division race didn't shock me as much as people are disappointed by that. You know, the Mets, the the red flag scenario was always, okay, well, if Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer get hurt, they don't have the pitching depth to make up for that. And that's exactly what happened. So I think the Padres and Mets, there were scenarios at the beginning of the season, you could say, if it goes wrong, here's how it will go wrong. And they were plausible. And that's more or less they went wrong. The Cardinals, to me, are the ones that are the biggest surprise, simply because this doesn't happen to the Cardinals. I mean, this is a team had only one losing record in the 2000s coming into this year. We're in 2023. We're not 2008 here. One losing record in the 2000s. And not only that, they're in the weakest division in Major League Baseball. The NL Central is not a juggernaut by any means. And for them to finish in the last place in the NL Central behind the Pirates? That to me is is outright shocking. And look, we knew there were some red flags coming in here with the pitching staff. You know, watching Adam Wainwright throw 85 miles an hour during the World Baseball Classic was certainly concerning. You know, you knew losing Yadier Molina was going to be huge, but to go 71 and 91 and finish in the last place in one of the worst divisions in baseball, it's one of the two worst, if you say it's not the worst. I mean. That is shocking to me. And to me, that's the biggest disappointment because I don't think there was any way to foresee this going as badly as it did in St. Louis. And it's shocking in that, like you would, if you had told me before the season, oh, that this, that this is what the, the Cardinals were going to end up as, I would have to think it's like, so you're telling me Paul Goldschmidt, like either missed the entire season or massively underperformed. And it's like, no, he wasn't his best year, but he was fine. And then you say, okay, okay, well, okay, so so Nolan Arenado missed the season. No, he wasn't as good as he's been. He's starting to tail off, but 
but he was fine. And you go, okay, um, what about Wilson Contreras? And it's like, oh, okay. Now there's going to be a big thing going on in the first couple of weeks, month of the season. But when the season's over, he's going to be one of their best hitters. And you go, okay, well, what happened here? And it's like, what happened is, is that everything seemed to fall apart, even though it wasn't like a team that was, they had injuries, but everyone has injuries. They weren't gutted. You look at their starting, their rotation, you're like, everyone seemed to be worse than what we would expect them to be. But the the concern I have with this is, is like, even with a, a, a relatively young core and they brought up Mason Wynn to join Jordan Walker, they still, you know, Alec Burleson played a good bit. Like this is not a team that was like rolling out like 35 year olds, but I do look at it and say, I struggle to look at without a pretty significant offseason moves how this team's going to get from 71 this year to 85 next year. Is is that fair? Well, I mean, I think a big thing is, you know, they're going to have to reload the pitching staff, right? I mean, Jordan Montgomery pitched well for them. They traded him. Jack Flaherty was traded. Um, Adam Wainwright's retiring. So they're going to have to reload the pitching staff. And, and with that, you know, they're going to have to improve the defense. I mean, we saw you talked about Wilson Contreras behind the plate. There were some issues there earlier in the year. Um, I, I, we really saw it in the outfield defense. I mean, it was really, really rough there for stretches. We saw Tommy Edmond go out and start playing center field to try and help out. And, you know, Jordan Walker in right field was um, very, very hard to watch at times. Um, you know, and I, I had a conversation with someone who's like, you know, they don't want to put him at first base because – that gets him involved in more plays. It would, you know, they're concerned it would be Jose Martinez 2.0. So, I mean, you're, he's got to be a DH, which I mean, isn't ideal, but he can hit. It's just, they've got to improve the pitching and they've got to improve the defense and, and, you know, where they could have one off season, we'll see, but it was, it, it, it's still, when you look at the total numbers this team put up, it's still shocking. Like, how did they go 71 9? Because you're right. It's not like that, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, does, it seems weird. Yeah. And, and that's where I think. How did the Pirates bit. end up with a better record? Like, that's yeah. when you look Everything at those two, wrong, if you looked at those two have. rosters today, I wouldn't be yeah. able to predict that. Yeah. You and know. everything went wrong so, that could have. And, and the pitching and defense, just the defense, especially, just was not there. So I'm not, I'm going to also ignore the Padres. And by the way, we're not saying the Padres are not one of the biggest disappointments this year. They're one of the biggest disappointments. But I wanted to focus on, as we mentioned before, there are three teams from the AL East going to the playoffs. The Orioles, the Rays, and the Blue Jays. But what is also notable there is what's not part, who are not part of the playoffs. Obviously, the Red Sox had a disappointing year that led to the dismissal of Heimbloom. They're still looking currently for a new head of baseball operations as we record this podcast. And then you look at the Yankees and I, to, to have the Yankees and Red Sox both play a lot of meaningless baseball in September is very surprising to the Yankees credit 82 and 80. They, they pulled it out. Like they, they avoided uh, yeah, I said, I'm a Steelers fan. I get very excited about the Steelers when they had the eight, eight and one year. And it's like, yeah, we're going to keep it or nine and nine, seven and one. We're going to keep that streak of winning seasons going And But you look at this Yankees team, you look at this Red Sox team and they have advantages. They still, the Red Sox have dialed back the spending a little bit, but 
they have massive advantages financially over the rest of this division, especially over the Rays. And let's just also be clear. I don't get the anticipation that the Orioles are a team that just tore it all down. And by the way, $150 million payrolls are just around the corner. Every, every time, uh, basically you hear anything from Orioles ownership, it seems to indicate like, Hey, we're not looking to be competing with the Yankees and Red Sox and spending down the road either. But so you look at those teams and the, the, the two teams who have the biggest resource advantages are the ones who are kind of lost a little bit right now. And I do look at this as like both of those teams also, especially the Yankees. I don't know. The Yankees have a whole lot of money tied to um, a couple of players who are very expensive, very limited now, especially in Giancarlo Stanton's case, DJ LeMay, who's K. They're, they're players who are very limited now defensively. And, but the big thing is, is I, I, I struggle to imagine they have a lot of, they have some interesting young pitching. I struggle to imagine that they're going to turn over more than one rotation spot going into next year to, Hey, we're going to see what the young guys can do, but they also, They've got to figure out what are you doing, Carlos Rodon? Garrett Cole's worked out very well, but what are you doing, Rodon? Where is this team going to get back to it? I would just say that those are two obvious disappointments as well, and ones that have to look right now at Baltimore, Toronto, and Tampa and go, okay, next year's not going to be easy either. Yeah, I think with the Reds, you know, we talked about it before the year. Um, talk about bad defenses i mean this this was a pretty horrendous defense combined with a bad pitching staff that that was not going to be a great recipe so you know them struggling is not a huge surprise to me um the yankees struggling to the level they did um is a surprise and i think the most concerning thing with the yankees is how many of their players are getting worse this is a team with a lot of guys who are just regressing and, and a lot of that is age but, you know, we've also seen some young guys come up and look exciting and they just they kind of regress or they go up and down. They're never able to, like, really hit the level you think they're capable of. I mean, we saw it with Glaber Torres. He, he was good this year, but I mean, you go back a few years ago. I mean, he looked like he was going to be a perennial all star, you know, franchise caliber player. I mean, you go back to 2019, 39, 38 homers and 90 ribs, you know, 278. I mean, average on base power, all of it. And then it just it all got worse and worse. And, you know, he's been okay. He's been better this year and, and last year was okay too. And so it was putting him in the wrong position, but you know, he hasn't taken that step you hoped for. And a lot of guys they've counted on just, again, it, it's a team of guys who for the most part seem to be aggressing. And I think the Yankees have to look at what they're doing organizationally, both in terms of the players they're signing and, and their processes. You know, they have these guys in the minors who look great and then, Again, they get to the majors and maybe they produce a little bit, but they don't sustain it or they regress. I mean, they, the Yankees have to do a wholesale evaluation of every aspect of their organization right now um, because that's not a trend that's going to bode well for the future. You can throw as much money as you want at players. If you do not have the right coaching infrastructure in place or front office infrastructure in place to help players get better and they are actively getting worse, you're just going to end up with a lot of dead money and dead contracts and more losses. And that to me is really the biggest thing for the Yankees is having kind of the, the self-evaluation skills and being humble enough to say what we're doing is not working. We need to evaluate this and change it 
rather than insisting, oh, no, we're fine. Oh, everything's balanced out. It was just a, a bad luck year. I think the Yankees, to me, are going to be one of the key teams to watch for this offseason in terms of how they address their issues because it, you know, if they keep doing what they're doing, it's not going to get any better. And we all know that's not acceptable in uh, in the Bronx for really anyone involved, but especially the fan base. So to wrap this up, uh, but we do want to cover the awards. Now, as we get to these, we do want to say I'm going to go mute on NL Cy Young because I have a vote. And you're not going to hear a word from Kyle about NL Rookie of the Year because he has an NL Rookie of the Year vote. And so we are not we're not going to offer any insights that may tip how we're voting before those votes are, result, uh, are announced. Neither of us have any AL votes. So we'll start with the AL because we both can talk about all of these. So Kyle, I'll, I'll, I, will, I will ask the leading question, which is, has there ever been an easier decision than this year's AL MVP? Uh, I'm sure there has been at some point. Yes. Um, Cause I, you know, but yeah, I mean, Shohei Otani, even though he didn't pitch after August 23rd and didn't hit after September 4th, still led the American league in home runs, still led the major leagues in OPS, still had the lowest batting average against of any pitcher who threw at least hundred innings in the American league. Um, and there wasn't really a great candidate. I mean, the runner-up candidate, Corey Seager, also missed a lot of time. And his OPS was 51 points lower. So, uh, yeah. I and mean, he didn't was, pitch at all. I mean, right. you know, which, so, I mean again, this one, even though it was a shortened season, um, yeah, this one, this one's a cinch. And I, I also think, too, on the Cy Young side, I mean, Garrett Cole, just again, we talk about a lot of pitchers had good years. You know, we mentioned Kyle Bradish, Kevin Gosman had a good year. Like right. a lot of pitchers had good years. I mean, this is also a pretty easy one. You know, Garrett Cole going out, having the season he had. Um, yeah, that, that one seems to me equally a cinch, even though it might not be talked about Could quite to the degree Otani is. Completely agree. Um, I think those two, and let's be honest, AL rookie of the year. This is not a real drama filled uh, league right now. Um, I would say that Gunnar Henderson at the end of the day uh, was lived up to everything we expected and to see what he did playing two positions quite well for the best team in the AL uh, to me. Also, he's your, he's my AL rookie of the year choice. Oh yeah. Is that well, he a slam dunk to you? At this point, yeah, but I think what's interesting about Gunnar Henderson and what we should draw some attention to is, you know, it wasn't as slam dunk as these others were early on in the process. So you go back to Gunnar Henderson, through the end of May, he was hitting 201, 332, 370. He was walking, he wasn't hitting for average, he wasn't getting to his power, he was striking out a ton. I mean, it was it was a rough start for him. And then we saw him make the requisite adjustments and click into gear. So from June to the end of the season, he hit 276, 322, 535, hit 23 of his 28 homers, 68 RBIs. I mean, he really was in a rough spot those first two months. He he contributed very little offensively. And we saw, as all young players do, they make adjustments. And, and it's interesting, you go back. Even at the start of this month, well, I shouldn't say this month, at the start of September, he was outside the top five among AL rookies and OP in all three slash line categories and OPS. He wasn't even his his start was so bad that going into September, his batting average, on base percentage, slug percentage, and OPS 
were all outside the top five among American League rookies, not just all rookies, mm-hmm. American League rookies. And he continued to play well. He had a really, really good September. And combined with a lot of other guys struggling, I mean, Masataka Yoshida completely fell off. Josh Young came back, but, you know, he was hurt for most of it. Um, he went up and took the award. And, and give Gunnar Henderson credit. He's absolutely the winner right now. And um, he, he earned it with how he finished the season. So now flipping over to the NL. Now, when we talk about the drama-free AL MVP, I will not <laughs> in any way say that about the NL. Uh, I would say a league where when you talk about MVP, you say Freddie Freeman, Matt Olson, you guys had incredible seasons. And we're really sorry, but we we can't really discuss you even that much when it comes to the finalist for this because Mookie Betts, Ronald Acuna both had incredible seasons. Who do you, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing it's going to be one of those two. Who do you, who do you have as NL, NL MVP? Yeah, you know, you and I had this conversation, uh, I believe it was the end of August. We talked about it after that Braves-Dodgers series. And I said, you know, this is going to change day to day. Um, I think at that exact moment, Betts had the lead in most categories. So you kind of gave him a slight edge. But, you know, we talk about hot finishes. I mean, Ronald Acuna Jr. went out and won this award with an absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary season. But he was great all throughout September. You know, you go back to uh, that time in August, Betts had the lead in most statistical categories. Not anymore. Acuna, 41 homers, took the edge. He leads in batting average. He leads in on-base percentage. He leads in slugging percentage. He leads in OPS by, you know, a good 30-plus points. Um, I, I mean, yeah, Ronald Acuna Jr. would be my pick for National League MVP if I had a vote. Again, it was close to begin with. Over the last month, I mean, he hit 340 with 11 homers and 23 RBIs and a 1.111 OPS in the final month. You talk about going out and, and winning the award. He went out and did that this final month and, and really solidified himself in my mind as I would say the clear-cut National League MVP. If someone for Mookie Betts, I wouldn't think they were an imbecile. I wouldn't you know, be like, what are you thinking? Um but, but to me, I can make a case. Yeah. You can make, you can make a rational case and I wouldn't think you're crazy. But for me, when I just look at everything this season, Ronald Acuna is is the winner. I want to ask you this, JJ, you know, you talked Mm -hmm. about the 70 stolen bases. Do those come with an asterisk for you? This is a conversation that people are having because of the rules changes. And look, objectively, it was much easier to steal bases now than it was to, you know, any point before this, you know, how do you view his 73 steals and, and reaching that 40, 70 plateau? So, okay, here's the way I would put it, right? Is it easier to steal bases this year? Absolutely. Sure. No doubt. Right. We've seen that generally it's, in, it leads to an increase of like 35%, let's say fair, you know, like, okay, we'll credit, we'll give, we'll give 35% credit for that, for the rules changes. Okay, so I'm going to take 73, and I'm going to say times 0.35. Okay, so let's take 25 away from them. So, okay, so now it's still the greatest power speed year of all time. So, I mean, when you say asterisk, like, these 
baseball, like, again, it's always difficult because there are different kinds of asterisks because I think anyone listening to this knows. But, like, when Roger Maris broke the record in a year of where we had just expanded the season and, you know, when we have expansion, it becomes easier to hit. There's always things that change, right? When we talk about 1987 and steel since then, well, in 1987, half the National League was playing on, you know, in, in roller rinks with a little bit of carpet thrown down on it. That basically meant if you didn't run, you couldn't play in the game that it was at that time. So all of these things affect uh, what you're doing. So, no, I to me, I, the funny thing is, is I remember when we had that conversation, I sold Ronald Acuna short. Because I said, we were talking about back and forth and all that. And I said, but what if Acuna goes out and has like 10 homers, so he gets to 40, and he gets 10 steals in the, you know, in in September, and so he gets to 40, 70. And that at the time seemed like, okay, that's a crazy month you're saying there. And he went out and went 11, 11. He had 11 homers and 11 steals in the month. But the thing that amazes me, he's my choice as well. If you, all of that, if you had told me when we named Ronald Acuna our minor league player of the year back in what, 2017, if you'd have told me that Ronald Acuna would have a year where he hit 40 homers and stole 70 bases, it wouldn't have like, I would not have said you're utterly insane or anything like that. If you just said that he would hit 337, okay, I probably would have said seems unlikely. But if you'd have told me that he would have 80 walks and 84 strikeouts in 735 plate appearances, if you would tell me that he would hit for that kind of power while having an exceptional strikeout rate for a player with that kind of production, this is the, that was the one question we had. This is the player who struck out 188 times in 2019 in the midst of a great season. Like he was incredible in 2018. He hit 40 overs. He stole 37 bags. He hit 280. It was like there, it was an unimpeachable season. Yeah. But you would say, well, but he does strike out a lot. And he's utterly taken that. And he's taken this one weakness he had and he's thrown it into the trash can, which is amazing. Yeah, no, and we see that's what the greats do. I mean, the classic example is Mike Trout, you know, high fastballs, and he made adjustments and closed that hole. And that's what the greats do. They're, you're right. I mean, Ronald Acuna, even I remember writing him up, that Miley Player of the Year award. is like, okay, he's going to be great. He'll be one of those guys who, yeah, has a chance to go 40-40, and he'll strike out 150 times a year, but it'll be fine with the production he gives you. Like, the thought that he would be this and hit 337, um, Again, you never want to put a ceiling on on special talent, and it was clear he was a special talent. But there was nothing in the track record to suggest that. And even his early years in the majors, like you mentioned, you wouldn't have expected him to become that kind of player, but he did. He, he got better, and that's what the greats do. I think, you know, as we move into signing award here, uh, JJ isn't going to say much, but Blake's know with the Padres. There was talk at one point, you know, him versus Justin Steele, Spencer Strider, but, you know, Blake Snell, again, we talk about going out and taking it. I think what's most remarkable this season, and he would be my easy pick, you know, leads the majors in the RA, 225, struck out 234 batters. I mean, held hitters to a 181 opponent average. I mean, it was disgusting. Even with the high walk rate, he was the best pitcher in baseball. 
for not just, you know, it's like he just had a hot stretch here the second half. I mean, I think we need to remember Blake Snell actually got off to like a pretty bad start, which is fairly typical of Blake Snell. Like his April to June typically is not very good. And then his July to September is typically awesome. He got that awesome stretch start a little earlier this year. Blake Snell allowed 18 earned runs over his final 23 starts. (laughs) Think about that. 18 earned runs over his final 23 starts. That is insane. Um, yeah, to me, this is a, a clear cut. This is your NL Sign Award winner. And he joins a pretty, pretty special group of pitchers to win a Sign Award in both leagues. Um, and I do expect we'll see that again. With the way Justin Steele finished the year, especially, I think, kind of the debate kind of petered off a little bit. But I'll be interested to see how voters kind of treat it. JJ, again, now it's your turn, NL Rookie of the Year. Uh, I will not say anything okay. because I have a vote for this award. So NL Rookie of the Year, I, I think it is Corbin Carroll, the Diamondbacks outfielder, um, to see what he did. A- again, helping really as a rookie lead the Diamondbacks back to uh, success and in, in, in a playoff spot. The only thing, I, and I don't want to not talk about him because you see power, you see speed, you see it, you, you see it all. He played three outfield positions. You see all that. I, I think that he is the choice. The one thing I wanted to say, though, is, is and I think he's the clear choice. I do feel like um, that when it comes to Rookie of the Year, I, I feel like that the fact that uh, Kodai Senga is not uh, a traditional rookie kind of leads people to kind of forget how good of a season he had for the Mets in a season that there weren't a whole lot of Mets that want to remember this in any way, shape, or form. I think it's it's worth highlighting that it's like, okay, I don't think he's going to win Rookie of the Year, but I do think that that was notable, um, the year that he had. I do think also it was a very good year for rookies, especially you look around the National League. Kyle, you did our, again, I'm not going to even ask him any questions because he's got Rookie of the Year vote, but I'll just point out that as we were picking our all-rookie team that will be running at BaseballAmerica.com very soon and all, we have more good candidates than we have spots on the first team, which there that's not always the case. There are years where you're like, okay, we'll put this guy at this position because someone has to go there. This is the year where you're like, I really don't want to leave that player off or that player off or that player off. And that was the year that we had. So that's I with Kyle not being, you know, being mute on the uh, uh, rookie of the year, me being mute on the NL Cy Young. That's the way to, before we wrap it up though, Kyle, anything else? Like when you look back at the 2023 major league season, anything we didn't cover, they're like, Hey, you know, that's also something that we should remember or that we will remember looking back on this year from now. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of talked about earlier and, and you kind of hit on as well, but I think it bears repeating specifically in regards to Ronald Acuna and the stolen bases, you know, baseball is a game of change. You know, Babe Ruth started his home run bid in the live ball era when they started replacing the ball in mid games to get nice new shiny white non scuffed up balls. You know, Bob Gibson's 1.12 ERA came before they lowered the mound. You know, just because these accomplishments happened in the context of rules changes that made them possible doesn't mean they aren't remarkable. And I think that's just the nature of baseball, the nature of sports. I think it's important to put things in context and acknowledge that, yes, Ronald Acuna stealing 73 bases today is not the same as Ricky Henderson stealing 73 bases, you know, in the heyday of the 80s, but it's still an impressive accomplishment. And, you know, we can also play the card of, yes, 
this happened while these rules were in place. But everyone else, every other position player in Major League Baseball was emboldened and enabled by the same rules. And even with that, Ronald Acuna Jr. stole the most bases of any player in Major League Baseball. So I think it's just important you could strike that balance of, yes, acknowledge the context in which something happened, but it can still be remarkable. And I think that's how it's important we view Ron Acuna's stolen base total and, and a lot of stolen base totals this year. You know, acknowledge the context, but don't take away the accomplishment. I, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. For Kyle, I'm JJ. We'll be back. We'll be having a playoff. Try to record a playoff preview podcast tomorrow before uh, everything gets going. I, I say try because you never know when, you know, crazy stuff happens. But that's our goal. So we will be looking ahead in our next podcast after looking back in this one. So for Kyle, I'm JJ. So long, everybody. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.